This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, you're all talking about Boris today. That is unfortunate for your blood pressure, his future in the House of Commons, the quality of political debate in the UK and the rest. So we're not going to be doing, we're not going to talk about Boris, at least in the sense of exiting from Parliament, how many Tories out of prams, uh, how bad is it, will he be allowed a parliamentary pass, because that doesn't matter. What does matter um, is some of the legacy of what's happened over the last six years and what the future holds for Britain's trade policy, which has a lot to do with a thing called Brexit. So we are going to discuss that B today. The, um, we're going to talk about the UK, its trade strategy and what that should be. So we're mainly going to be looking forward to saying what does a country that is where it is, situated in the part of the world it's situated in, producing the kinds of things it produces with the kind of wider economic objectives. Everybody wants a bit of lower geographical inequality. Most people hopefully would like some growth at some point. They, um, given those objectives, what part can trade policy and a trade strategy play in that world. That is the point of today. And we're doing that because as part of our wider economy 2030 project that we in the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE are now a long two years into doing and have six months left to do. So we're into the like, what are the answers phase of the project rather than it's not looking good people phase of the project. They, um, so today we're doing the what does the trade strategy bit of that look like. Those of you that are really keen next week can come back for what does the business investment part of that look like. After that week after you can come back for what does the tax policy part of that look like. Because the point of an economic strategy is you need to join these things up, not just have, I've got some trade policy over here. Uh, I've got an idea about a kind of domestic industrial strategy over here. And these two things have nothing to do with each other, which is more or less how we talk about them uh, in Britain due to the whole low bandwidth, low capacity problem that we find ourselves in. So we're going to do the trade bit today. Um, uh, the, one of the authors of the paper we published today called Trading Up um, is, she's not called Trading Up, she's called Sophie Hale, but the paper is called Trading uh, Up, is going to give you a short summary of the report. The, um, uh, and then we've got a great panel to discuss it who bear the scars of Britain realising it did actually need to talk about trade policy when it was pretty sure for most of the last half century that it didn't really need to. The, um, in the 2000s, I, I cannot remember a single occasion when any minister, MP or senior civil servant asked me a single question about trade policy. But that world is gone. So first of all, you're going to hear from, so these guys are like celebrities now, by luck really, rather than talent. <laughs> so first of all, we, not you, Sally, sorry. Uh, first of all, we're going to hear from uh, Sally, who's head of uh, trade strategy and Brexit leader, which sounds, I always think sounds, you're the Brexit leader at Ernst & Young. I don't know what that involves doing, but that sounds aggressive. Um, uh, Ernst Young. Then you're going to hear from Alan Beatty, who's the senior trade writer at the Financial Times and has been educating lots of us about lots of things that people weren't paying enough attention to before the fashionable and then you're going to hear from Anna Menon who is the director of UK and a changing Europe and has been also educating the British public for the last six years even when they didn't want it uh, about some of the choices they were facing and is doing question time next week mm -hmm. in Lever Central with just the Lever audience mm -hmm. good so you can like you know give us a little flavour of that thanks so much Dima. that's fine yeah, that's what great. I'm here for the, um, great so that is the plan uh, as always you guys can go on to Slido to ask um, questions. It's hashtag trade trajectory. And so we'll bring those up as we go. Um, but if you want to ask questions in the room, you know how to do it. You put your hand up, we bring a microphone over, you ask your question, you then may or may not get an answer because it's a free world. Okay, 
Good. Right, that is the plan. Sophie, what is in your 83-page lack of self-control length report? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks for that introduction. That's uh, what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, so, first of all, just a quick thanks to my co-authors um, on this report. So that's Shania Balosha, Emily Fry, and Swati Dingra. Um, and also thanks to Nuffield, who are founding the uh, funding the Economy 2030 Inquiry Project. Um, oh, spoiler. Uh, so, the um, Britain has had a post-Brexit trade policy, and it's one that's been focused on um, prioritising the speed and volume of free trade agreements uh, that it can sign. And effectively, what that's looked like is uh, Liz Trust sort of rushing around to get all the deals that we can get, um, as you can see here. Um, and ultimately, this was about trying to offset some of the lost openness that we experienced post-Brexit. Um, but unfortunately, we can't really keep doing that anymore. Um, and we've kind of run out of road on this, um, in this approach. Um, and that's because there's limited scope for further liberalisation. So without a deal with either the US or China, which jointly account for around 24% of um, UK trade, there isn't just that there isn't that much more scope to kind of go on um, traditional kind of goods liberalisation. Um, the US has kind of already signalled that an, uh, an agreement is not on the table, um, and the geopolitical situation makes China kind of equally um, unlikely. Uh, the focus on speed uh, in the negotiations has also meant relying on these free trade agreements as a kind of um, readily available sort of traditional liberalisation tool. Uh, but these FTAs are focused mainly on goods, and so they don't cater that well to the UK's strengths as a services superpower. And so while this clearly is a policy for UK trade, um, it hasn't really been a clear strategy. And so how would we go about kind of defining what is a strategy for trade? And um, what we think this is about, it's about having really clear objectives that are grounded in the reality of the UK's current performance in trade, but also its role in global trade. Um, and it needs to take into account the kind of global context. So that's both the, the rising geopolitical tensions, which are negatively affecting trade, but also the global trends that actually favour UK, um, because, for example, through um, services um, trade growing uh, more quickly than goods trade. Um, and ultimately, all of this needs to be integrated with domestic policy. As Torsten kind of already explained, this is about making sure that all of the parts of your strategy are working together and not in kind of opposite directions. And so what this points us to is a twin track trade strategy, um, one which is defensive on goods, and this is about protecting high-value manufacturing uh, activity that's in the UK, um, and one that's expansive on services um, and is kind of trying to find new markets for our world-leading world -leading services exports. Um, and so we'll now go through kind of each of those in turn, starting with the goods strategy. Um, so. A defensive goods strategy is needed to resist the decline um, in some of Britain's most successful manufacturing industries. Um, and we can effectively see that here. So the hit to UK manufacturing is quite clear um, and has already been, uh, has already been discussed. Um, and this is showing what's happened to uh, the volume of UK exports um, in cars and chemicals as two kind of high value manufacturing sectors post-Brexit. And what we see is that um, they're now 11% below and 2% below pre-Brexit levels uh, and clearly underperforming uh, the G7. Um, 
And our past modeling showed that although the overall hit to manufacturing output may not be that large, what we are going to see is this structural shift. So effectively, our high productivity man manufacturing kind of giving way for lower productivity manufacturing because they're the ones that are more likely to gain from having higher barriers um, between uh, uh, on EU imports. And this is one of the ways that we're expecting the UK becoming less open as a result of Brexit to also make Britain poorer. Um, much of the recent focus on manufacturing has been the cars industry, um, and we kind of explain that that's because the transition to net zero has effectively turbocharged some of the issues that we're seeing. There's a big push for a lot of investment that needs to take place now and over the next couple of years, and so we're kind of experiencing this at a faster pace than we might in some of the other sectors. But ultimately, this just illustrates the issues that we expect to eventually face our other high-value manufacturing sectors as well, for example, chemicals or, or spacecraft and aviation. Um, UK manufacturing is deeply integrated in EU supply chains um, and the UK manufacturing also plays a sort of mid-supply chain role. Um, if you look at this chart, you'll see particularly looking at the bottom, um, we illustrate this by showing the importance of the EU market, particularly for our intermediate goods. So these are goods that rely on its kind of downstream EU supply chains um, as, their, as their kind of primary market, where the share going to the EU is 48%, much higher than the share for final goods. Um, and this holds um, across these um, high value manufacturing sectors, um, like for example, in other transport equipment, where that, that um, difference is even larger between intermediate and final goods. Um, there'll always be some outstanding uh, high value manufacturing activity that does remain in the UK, even in the face of these new barriers with the EU. But ultimately, this is about trying to stop this big structural shift that will um, push away from our high value manufacturing sectors. Um, and in, to do, to, in order to do that, the UK needs to stay integrated in, supply, in global supply chains. And in this case, in EU supply chains, because as we've said, there is quite limited scope for further goods liberalization beyond the EU. Um, luckily, politicians are more or less united in their desire to reverse the decline of manufacturing exports. Um, but unfortunately, the tweaks that are currently being discussed are not going to be big enough to deal with the challenges that face high-value manufacturing sectors who previously faced virtually frictionless trade. So this is just kind of setting out the, the sort of path of exporting um, according to the kind of three three different um, types of arrangements um, and where we are now is, is that kind of top path um, with a free trade agreement where we've now manufacturers now face a bunch of new complex administrative tasks and regulatory requirements in order to export their goods um, but even a customs union that's kind of often uh, presented as a sort of game changer for the UK EU relationship may not do um, as much as we might hope and again the chart shows that many of the many of those kind of um, new barriers facing our manufacturing exports wouldn't be addressed. Um, so it would address the rules of origin, but it won't address um, standards and conformity of checks, and it might not address the risk of um, further regulatory divergence. Um, and all in all, meaning that it, it might not reduce the risks of delay and rejection at the border, um, which is affecting that, that kind of interlinkage in, in EU supply chains. Um, Turkey is an example that does have a customs union with the EU. Um, shows that actually the expected impact on trade might be quite limited. Um, and what's more, the businesses that are reporting issues tra trading with the EU are reporting a range of issues that are not just related to rules of origin, um, border checks, disruptions, additional paperwork that would go beyond the things that would get addressed um, in a customs union. 
And so what are we proposing? We're proposing a UK protocol um, uh, which would um, seek to expand the arrangement between the EU and Northern Ireland to cover the entirety of the United Kingdom. Um, the, um, and effectively, what this would do would be to deliver the benefits of the EU customs territory, um, as well as the single market for goods, um, and in doing so, restore virtually frictionless trade for um, EU-UK trade. Um, it could boost our GDP by as much as 1% to 2%, um, according to modelling of similar arrangements that was done after the referendum, which is what you can see here on the chart. Um, these arrangements are slightly... Um, the the arrangements that were modelled vary slightly from the um, exact kind of uh, proposal in the, in the UK protocol. Um, and so, yeah, th that's kind of what you're seeing here. Um, but this is really big in terms of the overall impacts. Um, and this is particularly big when you compare it to the kind of benefits that you might expect from the tweaks that are currently being discussed um, and that are on the table. Um, and importantly, the benefits that you might expect to see from this um, uh, United Kingdom protocol would be concentrated in UK manufacturing regions, for example, the West Midlands, um, because that's where that kind of activity will be most likely to benefit. Um, and so while everyone's talking about goods, um, what what's really important for a UK trade strategy is dealing with the UK's um, services strengths and finding a strategy that works for us as the second biggest services exporter um, in the world. Um, and what's more, the patterns of global trade, um, particularly in kind of uh, UK services specialisms, um, can and should be harnessed to help deal with the UK's dire economic performance um, in recent years. And um, as shown here, uh, growth in services exports um, in sectors where the UK has a revealed comparative advantage has been much faster than that for other sectors. So it's tripled between 2005 and 2021 for um, services with a UK revealed comparative advantage compared to just doubling for our goods, uh, for, for global goods exports. Um, a strategy uh, that focuses on services can also look beyond the EU um, because services, um, our services exports are less dependent on the EU. So while 61% of our services exports went beyond the EU in 2018, only 50% of our goods exports do. And luckily this allows us to kind of navigate around the thorny issues related to free movement of people. Um, but there also remains significant scope for further liberalisation because even the countries which we've recently signed free trade agreements with won't have done as much in terms of liberalising services as they did in terms of liberalising goods. So we can actually build on these free trade agreements that are already in place um, with, with these countries. And this kind of points us to um, a number of countries where we can look to do more, including Singapore, Australia, Canada, Switzerland and Japan, um, while also exploring services deals with our largest markets, um, for example, the US, um, where it might be easier to do something on services than on goods, um, given the kind of current geotensions are very focused on manufacturing supply chains. Um, these six priority markets accounted for almost a third of global demand for um, services exports in which the UK has a revealed comparative advantage. Um, and this is almost the same as the demand that's coming from, global demand coming from the EU. Um, and what's more, the growth rate um, since the financial crisis has been higher for these countries than for the EU. And so what we're proposing for services, we're proposing that the UK should try to design and deliver new services trade agreements that would target the barriers that are most restricted restrictive to UK trade rather than just relying on um, traditional trade tools that are, are better um, uh, at dealing with goods 
um, liberalization. Um, these would focus on addressing the ability of service suppliers to move across borders to deliver their services and also to reduce um, regulatory restrictions facing them in trading in other markets. Um, they could build on the elements of successful services liberalisation that exists and that has been agreed with other um, by other countries and by the UK. So, for example, the range of mutual recognition of professional qualifications, digital agreements, mutual recognition agreements that are sector-specific and deal with sector-specific barriers, for example, in financial services, um, and enhanced mobility arrangements. Um, the necessary focus on regulatory regimes means that regulators need to be in the centre of both the negotiation and the implementation process, and so the actual approach to negotiating and managing these agreements would also need to kind of be revisited in the context of, of, of promoting these um, arrangements. Um, a package that could successfully remove these barriers that we've talked about um, with uh, UK priority markets could reduce um, it could increase trade by up to 40% in certain sectors, as you can see here, um, if you could kind of cover off all of these barriers. Um, and that is equivalent to around 6 billion in business services exports, if you could get this with Canada, Japan, Australia, and Switzerland. And that goes up to around 17 billion, if you could also add in the US on that. Um, but uh, addressing trade barriers must be complemented with our domestic policy. Um, agenda. And without this, the UK is going to kind of continue to fall behind. Um, so the UK has gone from being the fastest growing services export market in the G7 pre-global financial crisis um, to um, sort of middle of the pack, as you can see here. So, you know, we were on the, we, we, we are the furthest right, which is the, the fastest growing in the, in the kind of earlier period. Um, and then we're just kind of, we're, we're not close to the top anymore, um, which would be the, you know, where the kind of leader would be. Um, so aligning domestic policy um, will mean several things. Um, it will mean dealing with our, um, helping to support our strengths. So for example, our highly skilled workforce by having a sensible migration and skills policy. Um, it will also be about um, dealing with our weaknesses. So for example, our like heavily lagging business investment um, in the UK. Um, but it'll also be about building a strong regulatory regime that helps to support our exports that we currently do, but also helps the UK to develop capability in, in new sectors um, that are kind of emerging and growing, and um, particularly those that are aligned with our domestic strengths, so our kind of natural strength in services um, and our wider domestic objectives, for example, um, the transition to net zero. Um, and so overall, the gains for a strategy that really takes um, the services issue seriously could be very large. Um, global services are expected to increase from 25% to 28% of uh, total exports by 2035. Um, and the UK is particularly well placed to take advantage of this. And um, this chart shows a kind of range of scenarios for the direction that, for the path of UK services exports um, in the future. And when we compare the kind of UK maintaining its current market share, so it keeps the market share of total global services exports that it currently has, and compare that to the kind of expected path that we um, might see after the impact of, of um, Brexit on services trade is, is, is experienced. That difference is around £200 billion in services exports in 2035. So this is um, really kind of big numbers. 
But is any of this actually achievable um, and realistic? Clearly, it's both politically and substantively um, very hard to deliver. Um, and that's not just on the UK side, where political parties have already ruled out a customs union and a single market, but also for the EU. Um, and even on the services side, this is pretty difficult. Um, and that's not because of, uh, it's less because of the political reasons and more because of the practical uh, challenges around innovating and kind of creating a new tool and getting other countries to agree. Um, but it is possible. Um, first of all, closing factories and losing manufacturing jobs is not um, particularly easy to weather politically. Um, and on Brussels, they were there before. Um, they did offer this type of arrangement under Theresa May's premiership. And what <coughs> also is the, is the kind of um, uh, basis of the arrangement between the EU and Northern Ireland. Um, and additionally, it could also help to resolve the remaining tensions between sort of EU, UK, Northern Ireland, Northern Irish trade that are currently being resolved with the Northern Ireland Protocol. On the services side, um, again, the ability to build on um, where agreements have successfully delivered services liberalisation will help us in kind of delivering these new tools. Um, and so... Ultimately, the fact that there are mutual gains between the UK and the EU means that a new arrangement with the EU should be possible at some point, um, but only if it's really prioritised as part of the UK's um, trade strategy. Just accepting the, what's been easy and what's available right now isn't going to prevent these kind of major structural shifts in manufacturing, and nor is it going to deliver for the UK services in the way that we need a trade strategy to do. Is it? Great. Thank you very much, Sophie. I should say you're all clapping Sophie partly because that was excellent and also because it's her birthday. Happy birthday. We're, happy birthday. That's right. We're not going to sing. We're not going to sing. It's not that kind of party time now. Some serious stuff, but we are going to say happy birthday to Sophie. Right. It's not your birthday, is it, Sally? Phew, because that would be awkward. I'd forgotten it. Right. Sally. Thank you very much. And uh, congratulations, Sophie, on an excellent report. There is, there is much in there with which I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, if I were to pick three themes that I can really get behind, they are that the existing speed and coverage policy has run its course. I think that's evident, both in terms of the fact that we've run out of countries with which to sign deals, uh, although you can always improve on existing deals. Um, but also because I think the current administration and officials have understood that the previous trade-off between speed on the one hand and depth on the other isn't sustainable going forward. So I certainly agree with you on that. Um, I also entirely agree with you on the joined-up policy-making point, which is, which is absolutely critical. And um, one of my particular bugbears uh, with Westminster, not Whitehall, but Westminster in particular, is that lack of coordination. Uh, and the, the fact that the Cabinet Office is no longer really playing that coordinating role across government in the way that somebody needs to. Um, the third thing that I can totally get behind um, is the critical importance of services to the, to the British economy. And of course I work for a services firm, of course I think that. But luckily the data and statistics back it up, so I'm, I'm entirely with you on that. Um, However, a, a, a presentation where somebody is violently agreeing with the author is never entirely interesting. So I thought I would raise three places where I have quibbles. Um, the first is that although the report recognises right at the top that we have to be honest about trade-offs, 
Nothing in the report then goes on, as far as I can see, to talk about what those trade-offs need to be. And if we were to take a defensive interest in goods and a very offensive interest on services, the, the, the obvious corollary is, well, what are we going to give up then in order to make the agreements that we need to make with the relative relevant countries? Um, and I think you can't take the conversation much further forward until you start looking, looking through that point. I think the, the second quibble I have is around the fact that goods and services continue to be treated as entirely separate topics. Whereas in practice, what we see is they are, if anything, converging. Goods can't be exported without services support. Goods are becoming increasingly servicified. I was talking to Rich, uh, Richard Drumbelow from Make UK, who some of you will know, um, only yesterday. And Make were telling me that around a half of their companies in the manufacturing sector now give away at least some of their products entirely for free because they make their money on the services that go alongside those. So in anything that continues to view goods and services as separately, I think, risks missing some nuance. Um, I think the third point is this is more a reflection of my deep cynicism but I do question the appetite of the world for services trade agreements as opposed to fully comprehensive trade agreements partly for the reasons already discussed but also because the entire world knows that it's in our interest to negotiate these and not necessarily in theirs so that and a UK protocol and the chance of doing a deal with the US particularly on services where most services are regulated on a state level basis anyhow makes those things really problematic which isn't to say we shouldn't look at them it's just a note of cynicism to inject in so um so therefore what do i suggest as as solutions that the government could look at well the first one is let's just properly implement what we already have we have mutual recognition of professional qualification provisions in the Canada deal, the TCA and, and elsewhere. But we don't actually put in place the resources to make those things happen. And that's just one example. So let's actually do a proper job of implementing what we've got because a deal is only as good as it's used and it's only usable if it's implemented. Um, the second is we absolutely have to have that trade-off balance scorecard conversation. We have to have the debate about whether fisheries are more important than financial services or farming than pharmaceuticals. And it might be that looking at the entirety of your policy in, 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 in a collective way means that you do think food security is more important than productivity, but let's have an open and honest conversation about that if we do think that's our position. And if it's not, then let's start actually having a conversation about how we will compensate and manage and mitigate the downsides for those who will suffer rather than just pretending it will all be okay when it clearly won't. Um, the third thing is that if I ruled the world, I would be placing some big bets on certain sectors that I would be prioritising. And those would be uh, financial and related professional services. That's another piece of self-interest on my part, but again, data backs it up. Uh, the creative industries, R&D, and alongside that tertiary education, um, green tech, green services, and green finance. You know, places where we already have a, a global advantage and or could do so with government intervention. So let's really start placing some big bets on our key areas rather than trying to be everything to everybody, because at the minute we're spread like butter on toast far too thin. We shouldn't try and be everything to everybody. We should focus on where we do best. Um, final point is that although the report is very much couched in terms of free trade agreements, it doesn't have to be free trade agreements. And I would be really um, up for a government that was willing to do stuff that doesn't necessarily lead to a big photo opportunity, but nevertheless can move the dial. So that would be things like regulatory cooperation, regulator to regulator dialogue. It would be a proper conversation that distinguishes between visa and mobilities and immigration. It would be a memorandum of understanding. It would be a proper skills agenda that looks not just 
18 months forward but 15 years forward. If we can do those things, then in a holistic way together with the recommendations in the report, at that point we'll have a proper trade strategy. Very good. Thank you very much, Sally. Good stuff. Alan, you're next. Thank you. Now, it used to be I turned up to panels like this and I was inevitably the most negative person on the panel by some distance. Um, some would say mindlessly nihilistic. Um, increasingly, I turned up to meetings like this to find I'm not actually that much of an outlier anymore. And Is that because the world's moved towards you or you've moved towards the world? It's certainly not the latter. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I genuinely don't know whether I'm sort of disappointed I've lost novelty value or pleased that at least now I have company. Um, customary declaimer before I say anything, I do not represent the, news, the views of the Financial Times. The Financial Times does not represent mine. Um, I'm actually really impressed how, how realistic and clear-headed uh, this report is in the sense that what we have so far with a, with a strategy based on preferential trade agreements, I will always see preferential trade agreements, not free trade agreements. Um, that used to be an FT... Um, uh, Style guide. Style guide, which I, I think was the last one. You're the last um, man standing. I'm the last man. You're standing. the last person in the, you know, in the Pacific Island. As a colleague, 1955. A colleague used to say the problem with free trade agreements is too often that they're trade-free agreements. Um, and the important is all laughs at the FT, isn't it? In the important just permanent that, gags. That's as good as it. Honestly, that is as good as it gets. Um, but the importance of, of regularising and improving relations um, with the EU. One. I would say I do actually see a trade-off is um, quite an honest thing that uh, if the UK is going to do this protocol with the EU on goods, that is very much a contrast with uh, joining the, tra the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yep. the CPTPP. Um, I have written that and have um, you know, got a lot of pushback from people I normally agree with. I'm, I'm glad to see on that particular one, I, 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 you know, <coughs> I've got some company. I would actually go further and apply a test um, that uh, before the UK signs anything, it should, bear, it should not do it if it's going to make it materially harder to rejoin the EU. If you want to do a very crude arithmetic um, test of this, most estimates I've seen of the hit to GDP productivity of Brexit are something like 4, 5, 6%. If you can't give me something which, you know, multiplied by the probability this will prevent rejoining or deter rejoining gets anywhere near there, then don't do it. CPTPP is certainly on the other, is on the negative side of that. And, you know, and I would, I would add, actually, that I think this, this debate increasingly will push towards rejo rejoining the EU. That will be the debate that we're having. Um, uh, as, uh, as Shefkovic said the other day, Maros Shefkovic, uh, you know, this, this relationship is going to get worse, not better. There's a bunch of other things coming in, like the entry system, like if the UK ever starts... Uh, Remind everyone what the entry system is, because not the everyone EU, is as keen as you. The EU is going to introduce a new entry system which will make it harder. Uh, you get a, um, electronic checks and so forth, which will slow down. Which has got nothing to do with Brexit, really. Even more so, which has nothing to do with Brexit, except it wouldn't... Um, Apply to us. <laughs> so, um, now, the, the protocol, again, where I'm, I'm a bit sceptical here. That the, the idea of the protocol is interesting, but I'm a bit sceptical about what about how keen the EU will be. In fact, I'm very sceptical about this. The EU hates, hates dividing um, the four freedoms of goods and services and capital and people. And we discovered that during the, the Brexit debate. Um, not only does it dislike it, but I think it dislikes it more and more than it did before because it is concerned about the fragility of the single market. I'm sure your parents told you, they said, mine certainly told me, the reason people are bullies is because they feel fragile inside. Um, the EU is concerned about the single market very much so. You saw recently this quite extraordinary thing where 
five uh, Central Eastern European countries suddenly blocked Ukrainian yeah. grain, right, because it was destroying their farmers. The Commission had to come in and do something I don't think they've ever done before, mm. which is this weird defensive thing whereby you're allowed to take grain through those um, countries but not elsewhere. They don't like doing that. They really don't like doing that and they don't want to break anything, um, anything further. One of the reasons that the famous German car makers did not come to the UK's rescue during Brexit is because they placed the integrity of the single market higher than a single 10% tariff on a single final good, which is what you would have had with, um, with cars. Also, by the way, you saw these intra-EU blocks on trade during uh, COVID, Emmanuel Macron literally impounding planes uh, carrying face masks on the, on the tarmac at Lyon rather than passing them on to Spain and Italy. That disturbed people quite a lot. The other thing is I wouldn't assume that the EU is rational or gets the idea about mutual gains from trade. They're doing things at the moment, for example, with these issues of rules of origin on electric vehicles, which drive divisions between the EU and the UK um, market. Really, if what you cared about was building an EU EV market, you would not do that. You wouldn't make it harder. Nonetheless, they are doing that because they've got this mindset, you know, a sort of lump of lump of business fallacy. There is a fixed amount of business to do, and we want to, to snuffle it. To the extent that the we the UK wants to snuffle it, the to the extent the EU does give special favours, I think it will be in the context of the UK clearly moving to each towards rejoining, not just getting a special deal, a special cake deal, um, and then stop it. Just on politics, one way and slightly optimistic, by the way, if you do get a Labour government and it starts doing bits of alignment, okay, maybe this sort of thing, just look at the cycle. European economy, Germany, for example, is currently in trouble because of the energy shock, okay? It's probably going into recession. By the time there's the next parliament, that's probably going to be recovering. So UK exports will, to the EU will probably go up anyway. So sign whatever you want, even if it doesn't actually have much impact in the real world, and then take credit for the rising exports, and then say we could have more if we did even more. Um, dishonest, but that's there you your go. shallowest point. Dishonest, but politics. That's yes, dishonest, but politics. <laughs> I did, of course, give up student politics at the age of twenty-two, um, after my after not least having been on the student union executive with Liz Truss. Um, now, <laughs> okay, we want that story, but afterwards, like we'll do the trade first after your misspent youth. She's not changed. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you changed? More cynical. Okay. Right. okay. Um, right. <laughs> right, let's keep going. We're way off topic now. We don't need Liz Truss. Um, on services, again, interesting and innovative to, to sign these sort of standalone things to do with mutual recognition and so forth. If, but, if you, but if you look at what's actually been done, the ones that do exist tend to be embedded in a, in a denser, thicker relationship, like, for example, US-Canada in what was NAFTA and now is USMCA, in the Trans-Tasman Agreement between uh, Australia and New Zealand. It's quite rare to have these on their own. The report does actually mention, I'm pleased to see really good detail, um, there is currently an ad uh, agreement between architects in the EU and Canada, which has come about as, as part of the deal that the EU signed with Canada, the CETA deal. That deal was signed in 2014 and went into force provisionally in 2017. They've only just done it now. And having spoken to a Canadian architect about this, um, architecture is one where the architectural associations get on really well anyway, and they do not regard each other as competitive threats. To do that on a broader scale is going to take an awful, um, an awful lot of time. Um, let me, since I'm almost out of time, let me just mention one or two things, or one thing in particular that wasn't in the report, but I think is there in the debate and will be a constraint to moving away from the PTA model. And that is, sorry, by the way, if it wasn't important, I missed it. And that is geopolitics. You very frequently hear this argument. Okay, never mind the fact that CPTPP 
that's 0.08% of GDP to UK, uh, to UK GDP, right? <clears throat> As I wrote the other day, in, 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 aud in sound terms, in audibility terms, it's a cat sneezing three rooms away, right? It's really tiny. But you often hear this sort of, yes, well, it extends the UK's something, something, influence, something, Asia Pacific, something, right? Global bit and blah, blah, blah. I always thought that was one of the last arguments of charlatans when you couldn't make a proper argument for a free trade agreement, you would, preferential trade agreement, you would wave your arms around and say geopolitics. Now trade has become a lot more geopolitical. That argument has at least got more salience. However, I, I don't actually think it applies. I don't think it's actually any more legitimate than it was before. The UK may have some more influence in the Indo-Pacific. For example, the AUKUS deal, the deal with the, um, the US and Australia security alliance with submarines, submarines attached. But honestly, that really has really very little to do with actual trade policy as such. That's a security alliance with um, military procurement on top of it. You don't really need to sign any, any kind of formal trade it's a agreement tra It is that. a trade policy. It's just a submarine-focused trade policy. But I don't think it really is a trade policy because it's just military procurement and yeah. you know, people have done it anyway. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really affect trade in particular and it's not about trade with the Asia-Pacific. It is about a security alliance with, with allies, one of whom, you know, two of whom happen to be in the Asia-Pacific. Um, Asia you know, EU membership, again, I'm going to go back to rejoin the EU member. EU membership was not an effective, was not a constraint, really, on British security or geopolitical actions before Brexit. The UK has been supporting the Ukrainian army, rightly, since 2014. Um, UK, on the other side, of course, the UK also invaded Iraq. Um, but you do need to be aware, at least, that those geopolitical arguments will be another thing that people put in, in place of uh, the UK moving away from PTAs and um, towards EU. Okay, so there you have it. Very good um, report, very solid. Um, it's a question of seeing how far the UK can go with designing those things. As the old saying goes, um, I don't have a solution, but I do admire the problem. Um, and what I suspect will actually happen in the debate as things go on is that increasingly the UK will be pushed towards the, the conclusion that if it really wants to do this, if it really wants to restore manufacturing trade and extend services trade, it's going to do so better inside the EU than outside. Very good. Very clear view. Thank you very much, Alan. I don't, I don't love where we started, which is the whole world has moved towards your pessimism and grimness. It's not very great, you know. Not, it's a sunny day today. Why can't we have the focus on that? Right. Give us some uplift. And it's all good. Tell us why it's going to be easy. I want to know why it's going to be easy and get better life as well as trade. Okay. Well, let me st I'll start with the positive, which is this is a depressingly good report. And I say that as, as the head of an organisation that has been talking about doing a report on trade. And when I saw this, my heart sank, so congratulations and happy birthday. Uh, three sets of comments. First on joined up. Uh, there's a, we have a lot of joining up to do. I mean, the first bit of joining up we have to do is between politics and economic reality. And that's the bit of joining up that went after 2016, is that politics has driven economics and has led to distortions, untruths, you know, Let's just face up. It always annoys me that people won't face up to the economics of what we're doing, because unless we face up to them, we can't put in place mitigating measures to limit the damage. So that's the first bit of joined up, is we need to start having an honest political debate about the economics, right? The second bit of joined up, as has been said before, is joined up between different bits of economics. And here I always find it weird that we've started with trade. Mm -hmm. Trade is the icing on the cake, okay? What you do is you define an economic strategy at home, you might define an industrial policy at home. And on the back of that, you say, 
We are prioritizing A, B, and C. Let us go out and sign trade deals that make it easier for us to achieve those objectives. We're doing it exactly the wrong way around, which is weird, but again, I think it's down to my other point about politics and economics. There are brownie points for signing blank pieces of paper with foreign countries, right? So again, we, we could join it up, and I think you know there are lots of ways of joining it up. Second, geopolitics. Slightly more positive than Alan about you know, trade deals laying the basis for geopolitical cooperation. That's to say, AUKUS isn't a trade deal, but AUKUS partly stem from conversations with the Australians about trade. So, and actually, I like to think, I mean, one of the things that Liz Truss did was bring trade and foreign policy closer together when she was in the Foreign Office. And I think that's actually a rational way of doing foreign policy, to be perfectly honest. But the other, the big geopolitical point to be made, I think, is, and this is pure happenstance, this isn't down to lies in a referendum campaign or anything, is you could hardly imagine a worse geopolitical moment at which to be doing Brexit. Okay, I mean, for Brexit... You're meant to be doing the perk. This is the perk. This is quite upbeat for me. Oh, right. All right. Uh, you promised... Yeah. You had a job. You had one job. Okay, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll make it upbeat because I'll be very, very quick. All right, how's that? Uh, but I just think, you know, for Brexit to, to have worked in its international dimension, you wanted a sort of freewheeling globalisation, a functioning world trade organisation, all the major power blocks looking at opening up and working with us. What do we have? We have a securitisation of trade. We have a virtually defunct WTO. Uh, we have, for a variety of reasons, partly security, partly the desire to foster green industries at home, the EU and the US turning to subsidisation of domestic industries, turning their back on trade, and lots of examples of that with the EU. And so, so I think it's just worth pointing out that actually the global environment isn't great for this sort of thing. On the EU and the protocol itself, several things. I mean, firstly, we should always tell ourselves that the TCA suits the EU fine. Okay. They have a surplus in goods, we have a surplus in services, and the TCA does virtually nothing for services, I mean a bit more than that, but quite a lot for goods. So what's not to like if you're the European Union? Secondly, compared to the impact on us, the impact on the EU is relatively trivial, so this has slipped down their list of priorities quite significantly. Actually, it's fallen off the bottom of their list of priorities if you talk to EU policymakers. And all the nonsense you hear about the review of the TCA, the EU is going to review the implementation of a treaty they signed. They're not going to review the treaty. Whenever they hear us talking that way, they sort of giggle. It's like, <laughs> no one's told us this. So let's not raise our hopes. On the protocol, I am a bit cynical about the protocol. Okay. Firstly, let me say on the four freedoms, the, the whole legal inviability of the four freedoms is nonsense. There is nothing. The, the legal bases of the four freedoms in the EU treaties are separate. This is just something they made up. It is a political mantra. It's not written in the rule book. So that's the first thing. But several things to say. One, you're not going to hear this very often. Theresa May negotiated a truly remarkable deal with the European Union. I mean, you talk to anyone who has studied the EU, how it negotiates, and you look at that document, I mean, the first reaction is, bloody hell, how did we get that out of them? I mean, the answer is over the significant reservations on the part of a lot of member states. Why did we get it out of them? Because it was the only way to solve Northern Ireland. We've kind of solved Northern Ireland now, so the EU aren't going to give us something to solve a problem that no longer exists. Why was Northern Ireland important? Because of the threat of violence, because of the EU's status as with the Good Friday Agreement, and because the vital interests of a member state were engaged. None of those conditions hold for the UK. I see absolutely no prospect of the EU giving that sort of flexibility to us, particularly the EU as it is now. 
Because the EU now sees the economic relationship with us in more zero-sum terms than it did then. There was a recent discussion in the European Union about uh, ammunition for Ukraine. And part of the debate was about should we buy ammunition from foreign suppliers and should we allow non-member states to participate? Now, there were perfectly good free trading reasons for saying yes to both, actually, which is opening things up. They said no to both. And that, I think, is representative of the approach of the EU to economics at the moment, which sees us more as a competitor than it used to. Why would they do? Why would the EU help us preserve high-value manufacturing here? Why would this EU help us? As soon as the EU reached the threshold for local content in EV production, they'll happily slap the tariffs on us. I mean, this isn't, this isn't as a joint undertaking. So I sort of think we think the EU is a bit nicer than it really is, I think, in a lot of the ways we talk about it. And actually, I've probably gone on for too long. And not been that perky. But uh, thank you very much anyway, because I'm, you know, I'm a sorry. host, so I say thank you even when we've totally failed uh, to give us the uplift. Right. The... Um, Okay, there's lots to chew on there and loads of really great um, thoughts. Let's, let's break this up into what's actually happened in the last few years, policy, what's actually going on on trade um, uh, flows. Then let's do kind of some of the big picture context. And then let's get to what should we do. And I think we've got like the tension that's coming through here that we need to like wrestle with is how much when you're trying to set a trade strategy are you just being like, there's nothing available so I'm just so we'll just like get on with some domestic policy and hope that's okay, which is a, the tone of a lot of like. Mm. There's basically a, a lot of this at the moment is like Brexit and global Britain, it's all going to be fine. CPTP, they don't like Alan on like his 0.00 cat sneezing story, but the um, uh, but broadly like loads can happen. Trade policy can do it all; it's all be fine. And then basically their critique of the Ramonas, which is people being like, it's all impossible. Uh, the EU's the big daddy, it doesn't want to talk to you anyway. Um, so like, there's nothing trade policy can do, goodbye. And then everyone who works in trade policy and government kind of cries and thinks, why have I made such a mistake with my life? <laughs> um, which everyone thinks. If that's, if that's you, you don't need to worry about it. That's what everybody thinks. They've all made mistakes with their lives and they're just hoping one day they will turn around. And the way it turns around is you retire. Now, <laughs> the, um, uh, so... So let's do that. Let's do context. So on actual, let's do the evidence on trade flows, what's actually happened since the TCA. So Sophie showed you some charts of some, because there is, although I completely agree on the like goods and services trade look a lot more, more like each other. And we're going to come back to what's the actual policy implication of that rather than, it's definitely true, everyone always says it, but what's the actual policy mm. conclusion from that? But on, but, but the trade data is doing different things on goods and services since the TCA came in more broadly since 2016. So we should focus on it. And we ask it, like, I mean, does anyone think overall the evidence isn't all that the, the, the kind of Brexit um, uh, opponents said would happen happened? FDI hasn't done what people said it would happen. It hasn't crashed in a way some people predicted pre-2016. But goods trade has been mullered. I mean, do we, like, it's the, like, standout. It's the standout. And it's been mullered, including in some really high-value sectors like it's chemical like the chemicals chart scares the hell out of me like uh, what do we actually is that our, what else has happened that's remotely as interesting as that in the last few years Sally? well a couple of observations really the the first is that you can and should compare the uk to the g7 yeah. but of course what we're really trying to do is compare the uk to where we would have been mm -hmm. absent brexit and um i'm not sure if it's bad form to mention another think tank you know it's quite rude but you know okay, so, so we're very confident people we can take it you're not going to bully me for saying it no, okay. no, no. So they're very resilient so center, center for european reform and john springford's um yep. work is is excellent and really does suggest just how bad the hit has been to, to both goods and services because of, of, of Brexit. So um, 
although you can say, well, we're looking at goods, looking at services, different story, I'm not sure you're necessarily looking at quite the right things. So that would be point number one. Point number two is that... But then just so everyone gets what you're saying, you're, you're just saying it's rubbish on everything. Yes. Okay, and, that is, and the reason he says that, without getting into the modelling, which is going to make everyone cry, they, um, is basically because the gro growth in services trade is faster overall, and so if you're just holding steady... Exactly, e exactly in that. In simple so, terms. So um, th that would be point number one. Point number two is that cool. we have a, a Secretary of State right now who I don't think, based on my observational evidence, is very interested in trade. Um, I, I think she may or may not be interested in business, but is probably looking for a reshuffle to into a different role and has, has used this as a springboard into the Cabinet. And absent a Secretary of State with strong interest in trade, it's very, very difficult to engage politicians on why they should be looking at a balanced scorecard in any case. So you asked what's happened over the past two years. I think actually having, having Kemi Badnock become the Secretary of State has been problematic in that regard because of the, 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 her own personal position on trade. I think the, the third thing is that there is a real issue around business confidence and of which we have done nothing to help whatsoever today. Um, but it's worth remembering that all of the things that we're trying to do right now in terms of opening up new markets and trading with new partners, we could have done as part of the EU in any case. And, and actually what we really need to do is to be recognising, I hate this phrase, but we are where we are and, and pulling our socks up and getting okay. on with trading elsewhere. Alan, on, on actual trade patterns, recent years, what are your... Well, one thing, that, that, one thing that has come, by the way, I just came back from six years living in Brussels, so a lot of, <coughs> sort of what happened in the UK I'm not really focusing on. One thing that everyone's been surprised by is um, migration, immigration, just mm -hmm. how high it's been. Yep. Yeah. And there's one area of services, I'm trying to think of elsewhere where this applies, I'm not sure it does, which is higher education exports. Again, I had not focused on this until I wrote about it recently, went <laughs> already bigger than um, pharmaceuticals, mm. already bigger than aviation. Mm. Mm. I'm tempted to say bigger than, um, it will soon be bigger than cars, but then obviously there's a numerator denominator issue going on there. I mean, I'm going to be bigger than cars in a bit. Um, <laughs> and, you know, three, three... I really hope not. I mean, you are big, uh, big not in the physical sense, but you're, you know, you're a big feature of the British economy, but the car industry is bigger. Three UCLs, um, UCL exports half a billion pounds a year in higher education through international fees. Three UCLs equals the fishing industry. Um, that's something that's quite impressive. And also, it's, it's, with, with the exception of one or two things, like the UK has an agreement with India, where India recognises UK master's degrees, because India typically have two years master's, UK has one year's master's. So with the exception of that, which is not essential anyway, it's something which is almost entirely in the gift of the UK. Yeah. Right? You don't need to sign deals to export higher education. You just need to lock the Home Office in, in a room and like not let them out. You know, And you, you, you sort of very clearly saw this recently. I mean, so, and that's obviously a massive, obvious comparative advantage. You know, okay. native English language, yeah. history, you know, culture, soft power, history of education, so forth. So that's one where I was, well, pleasantly surprised. Until okay, recently, very and good. Slightly less pleasantly surprised. Okay, very good. On, so, Anand, on, before we get some of these questions on, we're going to go on to the context and the, like, what do we actually do? But on the, what's happened, on the policy of what's actually happened in the last six years, so leave aside the, the nature of the TCA itself, what's your actual view on the, the FTA rush? Like, some people said it wasn't going to happen. Like, we're now saying it's not enough. That's definitely true. But a lot of people said it wasn't going to happen in the first place. No, I mean, it's good news. You know, it's, it is good news that we got all the rollovers that mm. we did, because at the time it was far from certain. And there was talk that the Canadians would actually say, hang on, 
why we'd give you the same terms as we gave the whole of the European Union. Can I just say one thing about what Alan just said? I mean, I think yep. the other part of the thing about uh, higher education is we probably need to have a conversation about a model that see, there's in danger of seeing foreign students paying higher fees, crying out British students. I mean, we need to, we need to be able to train our own yep. kids as well. And actually the model at the moment works as an export industry, but whether it works as creating a domestic skills base that we need, I'm not entirely certain. So there's something there. The other thing to say, and I'm sorry, this is probably not very positive either, is we haven't actually implemented the TCA yet. We start in October, a year long process of putting in place the controls on imports that we are meant to do under the TCA. And we, you know, you, the FT had a piece yesterday about why this is going to mean higher food prices and food shortages, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, this is why you don't you, invite it back. This is, you know, <laughs> from the parties. The policy isn't complete yet. We haven't, we haven't got to the end of that particular road. Although, although over I mean, I don't eat much fruit, so it's fine. You don't eat fruit. Yeah, so it's fine. You, shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be, okay. you should be eating fruit. I can't afford it. Then, okay. there, there is a cost of living crisis. We've got that event as well. Now, but on, Sophie, on EU imports to the UK are actually down by more than UK exports to the EU. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, which, which is weird. Which is weird, given that we haven't bothered doing half the checks, yeah. and they definitely have. No, it's not, though, because... If you're a UK exporter, then the EU, no EU is, you have no choice. It's 50% of your market. If you are somebody who's importing into the UK and it becomes harder, you can just stop doing it because you've got at least 27 other countries you can export to. It, it's yeah. not a surprise yeah. at all. Well, well, that, that, I agree with that. That is the reason. Yeah. That is not what people said prior to 2016. That's what everyone has said post actually, the data actually showing it. So it's another one where that isn't what people's models and, all said. And, and actually, to, to be entirely fair, I just wanted to... I'm glad you said that because it's reminded me of a gripe. But right. <laughs> but you you said that the, everyone said the economy would collapse. I, I don't think that is what people said. I think what most people so said. FDI would collapse. I think well, number one, it kind of isn't looking great, and number two, I think what we're seeing is the economy sort of going down a bit like a pricked balloon rather than an exploded yeah. balloon. It, it's it's still nevertheless a, a shrinkage. Yeah. But and we I did think, hear cliff edge an awful lot, and that shaped expectations and gave a stick for pro Brexiters yeah. to beat. Yeah. The economic but you didn't hear Cliff Edge from trade people. No. Okay. Right. Now, um, geopolitics to get some perk up. Okay. So here's, here's so because the other thing a lot of the people a lot of what is on the table in trade policy terms or like what's mm. obvious often is like one of the one of the things that make us make us cautious, which is the country needs a long term view about what it would like to achieve. And then we will then use that objective within the world as we find it and try to change that world over time, right? That's our actual overall objectives. And lots of what people say is like, oh, that's definitely not impossible or that's obvious. Like a lot of that has changed in the last six years. You gave us some examples, but like American approach to trade now does not look anything like American approach to trade in 2010. So like, what's our national interest? Work that out in a hard-headed way. Then deal with that as much as you can within the world as you find it. So let's go through some of the things that have changed. So let's do, on geopolitics, let's do, um, everybody wants to have some factories being built at home. Mm. Uh, they often say that with the word green mm. in front of it. And when they're not, they say uh, chips. Those are the two <laughs> big ones. But I kind of mean a bit of everything. But really, green and chips are the like, ones that are up in lights the, um, yeah. with a bit of like, and, not, not, and just less from China in general. The, um, is the biggest problem for the British car industry Bidenomics? subsidies for like domestic production in the U US and therefore in the EU mm. or Brexit? Alan? Definitely not Bidenomics. People are massively overestimating. But, but that is the one we're talking about. Of course, it, because it's, it's so obviously, you know, the, <clears throat> those specific subsidies, which remember are only specifically for electric vehicles and indeed for batteries within that, yeah. are so obviously contrary 
to WTO laws that everyone focuses on it. Five years, everyone will be focusing on Chinese cars um, flooding the EU market and the UK market, which is something which has not happened before. We're going to ban them, aren't we? They're definitely. The EU is definitely going to ban Chinese cars. There will be. I mean, there will be massive. Um, long run. There will be massive trade fights over this. But of course, a lot of this is, is being done through foreign direct investment, right? Yeah. Not, and if the EU really, it's got tools to do this if it wants to push out. Um, FDI because it's being subsidised from the board. It's just acquired That's one. What we're going to do? Really going to do that? I don't yeah. really think so. I reckon this thing that this thing that Sunak just signed with um, the with Atlantic Biden, the the, uh, the minerals um, Atlantic Declaration, sorry? Yeah, critical minerals. Yeah. By the way, I noticed you have to sign a thing with the word Atlantic in it. Yeah. Because um, uh, it was a big Johnson did the same. Johnson, it's a big, it's a big ocean. But it's critical. It's right. It's purely critical minerals going into batteries, going into EVs. Mm-hmm. That's it. The UK doesn't have critical minerals. Unless you're going to strip mine Cornwall for the lithium, which apparently is under there, right? Mm. This is very largely symbolic. It doesn't actually yeah. um, matter that much. And sorry, I'm going to mention the CR again. The CR, very interesting CR report that came out about... Unbelievable. EV. I know, I'm fine. It's <laughs> Literally <too>. no... Kind <laughs> of the thing is, you've got, an, you've got an EU mindset where you think there's like a fixed amount of attention to, to think tanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm very. I'm incredibly liberal. If you get recognised, you'll gain some trade on all. There are gains from trade. We read the papers. I get some ideas. <laughs> I think I'm going to do better than that. No, come on, get on with it. What story? What are you going to tell us about their disgraceful report? <laughs> um, uh, the the distance effect in uh, EV manufacture, yeah. green manufacture, is actually getting yeah. bigger. Batteries are really heavy. You have to yeah. hold them at home. If there's going to be a supply chain, it's going to be between the UK okay. and the EU. Um, that is much more important than, than Bidenomics. And yet the, the, the very focused security bits of Biden, you know, you need to have a chips exporter they're really worried about before they, before like the Dutch and the Japanese, they try and bully you into putting chips export. Yeah. We don't have that. So yeah, that's no not that Right, I want to do good news. Okay. So what I'm, like, the chart that Sophie mm-hmm. showed us on patterns of trade growth. So like goods trade mm-hmm. broadly flat since 2010, not de-globalisation as everyone says, but like the same globalisation. Yeah. Services trade growing, and the bits of services trade we happen to be have comparative advantage in, which is quite a lot of services trade, um, growing faster. So why are you not, not all just like showing us a bit of perkiness? Like even if you don't do trade policy any different, the markets, you know, the markets that are growing are the ones that we happen to flog stuff into. So we can just stop being idiots. There's some good news in the trade world, even without like sort out yourself domestically, be a bunch of adults and enjoy the world kind of wanting to buy the stuff you happen to produce. So come on, why are you also per- depressed? And you can go first and defending your depression. I don't recall being depressed about the services bit of the report, to be honest. Okay, but go, give me some actual, what do, you actually, what do we actually think about this? Are we going to be able to ride this tide to a richer Britain? Uh, I think services are the route to do it. I think, what, you correct me if I'm wrong, Sally, I think one of the things is some parts of services exports to the EU have held up yeah. relatively well. And I do yeah. wonder whether yeah. actually that is because of Zoom and COVID. That is yes. to say that, you know, a lot of, you know, COVID came at the right mm-hmm. time for us in that sense, in that a lot of services suppliers switched to doing things virtually that they were doing in person. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of tax and visa ramifications of that down the line, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, not just yet. in my world, the world of academia, I mean, I know loads of colleagues who were contracted to go and teach courses in an EU member state decided that actually going and doing it would be a bit hairy because they didn't know which forms to fill in. <laughs> so they did it online. Yeah. Uh, right. I, I do think there is a risk with services that pe- people are delivering services which technically 
are not quite lawful. Mm, not sure. not risk. There's a 100 sure. yeah. That is happening left, right and centre. Can, can right. I just make a comment yeah, on go, geopolitics? Is it perky? Briefly. No. Go on, briefly. So, um... I don't know how Torsten goes on about people being... Per Have you seen the reports, the resolution? I'm very perky. <laughs> <laughs> it's chart. Is, it's like, the chart is saying so look rich. the services growth. Isn't, isn't it because Torsten gets it all out via his reports and therefore as yeah. an individual can be... Perfect? That's great. Excellent. Yes, I'm very set inside. Come on. Um, Let's have the depression. I, I worry, actually, on geopolitics that the thing we will regret most in 20 years' time is neither Brexit nor Bidenomics, but is actually going to be the way that the developed world has entirely vacated the field with the developing world yep. and leaving it open for China. I think yep. that's probably the single biggest risk right, right now, and it's entirely off, mm. off the agenda in both London and, and Washington. China and Russia, actually. Mm. And it's going to stay off the agenda for the next 15 minutes because we can't cope. I'm already drowning. Okay, we will, we will all try and find one Very good. happy thing to right. say. Right, Sophie, you can do this one. So we're now going to go on to, like, what do we actually do about some of this stuff? The, um, so can we have some examples of good services trade agreements? What, what do you want us to learn from? Uh, so some of them have been mentioned already. Um, we, the components that we talk about, so the first one is mutual recognition of professional qualifications, and we mentioned that... Okay, yes, very limited scope, but the EU and Canada has now agreed one. Um, but the US and Canada also have, um, you know, frameworks. Australia and New Zealand have frameworks that allow them to kind of create these a lot more easily. Um, and there's no reason that the UK, yes, these countries are much more closely aligned, but there isn't a re like a technical reason that the UK can't have the similar kind of frameworks. Um, one place that the UK is doing really, really well already is in its kind of digital agreements. So it's got um, the Singapore Digital Economy Agreement, which is you know, often described as kind of world-class um, digital agreement. Um, and it also has di um, data adequacy arrangement with the EU, um, which if you could kind of build on, on the kind of principles that are in that arrangement um, and, and use that with other countries, you could really um, help liberalise uh, services, but particularly digitally enabled services, which as we've just talked about is, you know, come, you know, becoming increasingly important. So this is really about the future of services trade. Um, what's the, the mutual recognition of financial services that the UK is trying to negotiate with Switzerland is also another um, really kind of exciting um, leading edge um, services trade agreement or, or services trade arrangement um, that could be negotiated, um, hopefully, I mean, the latest I saw was this year, but I mean, we'll see if that, if that kind of comes through. But that, again, is really kind of cutting edge in terms of what it's trying to achieve between this kind of single market model versus the kind of normal relationship you have in financial services um, between third countries. And, it, and, if it, and if successful, and if you can then kind of use that as a template that you can roll out with other countries, if not in its entirety, at least in part, yeah. that is, um, yeah, a really good example. And actually, one of the nicest things about the Singapore Digital Agreement is it's an example where our international policy and our domestic policy are really well aligned because we've mm. got the Electronic Trade Documents <coughs> Bill. Yeah. So explain, explain to people what this means. Electronic Trade Documents Bill means you can take all the parts of trade that used to have to be done on paper and do them electronically instead with massive efficiency and accuracy. And Someone has decided it might not be a good idea to have a squillion bits of paper. Yeah, I was talking Genius. to one of the banks who said they employ 3,500 people every year to produce 19 million documents every year, paper documents every year. It's nuts, absolutely nuts. You, you want to destroy a lot of jobs, is that what you just said? No, no, I want them to be doing much more productive and interesting <laughs> things. Oh, Brad. Very bad. Right, OK. Yeah. May, let's, can, oh. I, can I ask, is this, this atypically from eating, this is more question than a comment. Right. Um, as I understand it, there's a slight tension here, which is that the adequacy agreement with the EU 
although adequacy agreements, you know, they are fragile, they're subject to unilateral withdrawal, 30 days, da, da, da. They're also obviously going to be affected by the much more risk-averse, protective, um, and indeed um, volatile, because of all the, the ECJ cases that mm. keep coming through, mm. the Schrems case and so forth. Yeah. I'm not sure how compatible that is in the long run with with extending digital agreements with the likes of Singapore and with <coughs> the, the, again, the TPP um, approach where you actually have clauses which guarantee data transfer. Now, I mean, clearly it is at the moment because the UK has done it, Japan has done it mm. as well. But I just wonder at some point if the if the need to keep EU adequacy, which mm. is going to trump, mm. frankly, yeah. the need to have deals with Singapore, is going to be a constraint on the UK's digital policy. Mm. Yes. And that's going to be a decision. That's basically a decision for Brussels, isn't it? Yes. Basically, yeah. So we're going to find out basically whether how far down that road yeah. they want to go, basically. Yes, and when and if and when they do go to do that, yes, of course they will. Uh, they will consult, but they don't need to reopen the TCA. These are not reciprocal agreements. They are not treaty Absolutely. agreements. They're just. Yes. We should also be clear-eyed, I think, because a lot of people talk about alignment with the EU. Just how, if we're serious about aligning across a whole range of sectors with the EU. An awful lot of people in Whitehall are just going to be tracking what the EU. I mean, yeah. the administrative That's task. Yes. involved in doing that is going to be huge. Yeah, yeah, but that's all right, because they're going to employ the people that Sally just put our work in the banks. <laughs> the, uh, you know, swings, roundabouts, swings, roundabouts. I don't want them to do more productive and interesting All right, okay, stuff. very good. Oh. Now, okay, the, um, just big picture then. I just want to, so, so Stephen's got a great question. Uh, they're not Stephen. Who's got a great question? Guy. Sorry, Guy, you're not Stephen. Right, so the um, Guy's asking, is a coherent trade strategy possible along without the absence of a UK industrial strategy, which I'm going to cheat and call a UK economic strategy? Our answer is no. Mm. The question is, what is that? So sitting behind this paper, and obviously it was already long enough, Sophie, so uh, it doesn't have like a kind of precursor chapter on what is the economic strategy, but implicit in the economic strategy is you should place a lot of value on your existing high value manufacturing, which you're going to structurally move away from for a number of reasons. One, it's high value, so we'd like some of that. Secondly, it's very, it's very important to certain geographies within the UK, and if it goes, you ain't going to put something else, provide anything like those kind of jobs in those places. Again, hello, hello, bits of the West Midlands for um, cars. The, um, some places with large chemical plants, they ain't going to be replaced in those locations. The, um, uh, but, the, but it's not your growth strategy. It's like a kind of stopping a decline strategy there. I mean, hopefully there would then be some growth along those sectors, but it's not mm. principally. But, but the most of your growth in high value trade is coming in the services end. And that that's the underpinning view that then your trade strategy is building off. Does anyone think that is not right? Or has an alternative or you're allowed a tweak to it? Or anyone in the room? Well, we all agreed that is this lady here. Have we got a microphone, James? No pressure here, but what is the UK's economic strategy? <laughs> and I'd like it swiftly, because I've got 10 minutes and loads of good questions to get through. Sorry. Um, no, I don't have any answer to that. But I oh. think one thing that uh, occurred to me, I think, Sophie, that uh, you mentioned in the talk was the sort of the loss of competition that we're having in the UK um, due to Brexit and, um, and the impact that it could have on productivity. And so I, w I was a little bit sort of surprised that then you are sort of proposing sort of shielding those industries where yes, we do have really high, sort of high productive yep. uh, companies, but at the same time, you know, to continue having this productivity growth, I think a sort of a level of competition is actually could be really beneficial. So yeah. I guess I'm sort of. I think we basically disagree with you, but so <laughs> so we don't that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of sh shielding them, um, I don't think this proposal does that. This proposal is about um, 
reducing the barriers in, in, to the extent that they trade with the EU, reintroducing that comp like much more even competition, um, and that actually is a is a major component. So what we don't want is manufacturing that's just filling a gap because it's displaced. Um, you know, it wasn't productive enough to survive before and now it can because there's these trade barriers. Um, so this is actually about increasing that competition. I don't think it does very much in terms of shielding from other countries. It obviously does limit, and this kind of came up, that kind of trade-off question. Like It does limit what you can do with other countries. But the EU already had the vast majority of the deals that the UK has. And so as long as you're kind of keeping them in place, you still have the competition from third countries as well. So I don't think it cuts anyone off and it, and it increases openness with the EU, would be the plan. Robin, so taking as a, none of you is offered an alternative economic strategy, slightly telling. Uh, all right, go, good. We've got another, we've got another. It's like a kind of like okay. tombola game. Uh, just, you're assuming that government economic strategy and um, trade strategy uh, is going to be able to change the dial on company behaviour. The alternative economic strategy, surely the basic one is, big corporates will work their way around the barriers that are in that are in place, and that that's already what's happening. That's what's happening in universities, various other places. And actually, we should be looking at the decisions that are being made now, because that economic adjustment to Brexit is already happening. So go on, take me to the conclusion. What's the conclusion from that thought? The, the, the conclusion is that, uh, the first part of your economic strategy is actually what are companies actually choosing to do now yeah. where that they are telling us are the, the, the strengths of the, of the UK. So you're starting by actually looking up what people are seeing okay. in this country. Very good. Now, Robin online has, got, has a good question, which is um, what's the economic geography of that being the UK's strategy? Okay. Now, um, so I don't quite, the phrasing of this I don't quite agree because it's not about pivoting from goods to service, it's that the economy is services with some really goods that are really important in certain um, sectors. So it's not less about changing in that direction, but it's true that accepting this does have implications for economic geography. Now, the exam question is, where are people on the, so big picture, what's unusual about Britain? Very large cities outside of London that are low productivity, but very large in terms of population, okay? Birmingham and Manchester are the two key uh, big ones. Isn't, is a services-led strategy, including the trade strategy, but rooted more broadly, the actual answer to the productivity bit, which is definitely not the only bit that matters. Incomes matter, quality of life matters, public services matter, public realm matter, but on the productivity bit of leveling up, closing productivity gaps between regions, our view is that a service strategy it offers you the only plausible route to Birmingham and Manchester being much richer places. Where are people on that? I think that's probably true, but there are other planks as well. I mean, you know, one of infrastructure, transport, and things like this in these great northern cities are massive constraints on their ability yeah, to, to function that. as services yeah, hubs. Yeah, absolutely so, right. you know, totally yeah, right. absolutely, yeah. services. That's why you need domestic policy decisions, not just trade policy. No, and actually, I would also add because Alan mentioned immigration earlier. The other thing that's happening post Brexit is. One of the ways in which the patterns of immigration have shifted is that, you know, EU migrants aren't going to the east of England to pick fruit. They're going to the cities because they're earning, because they've got jobs they're earning over the minimum threshold, which is increasing inequality between the richer and the poorer places because the richer places are sucking in a lot of talented immigrants. Uh, so that's something we're going to have to think about down the line in that context as well. Very good. Right. Uh, Alan, you can take this one. Richard. So he, he's there's the EU technocracy. He's not explicitly saying that you're speaking for them, uh, but nothing's going to happen. The, um, on, so again, I think we all agree on what's on the table now. Okay, not very much. Like they're not no interest in it, and not a lot of, and definitely not wanting to go back to Theresa May's uh, deal. 
but it's a long game, right? It's a long game, and the um, and with a like, give, I'm looking for a bit of perkiness here. I'm like, is there a potential path to like a better relationship when it turns out, for example, that it becomes kind of slightly unsustainable to just say to the US, uh, you can have financial services equivalents, but the people with much more similar regulatory environment to us can't, i.e. us. They're, plus, at some point, the EU wants some other stuff from us. I don't know, a war. They're, like Other things are happening. Is, it, is there any sign that like, if people have a generally more positive relationship, the world changes? Alan. Um, <clears throat> OK, there are two things. One on, um, as it were, the vibe, since we now yes. vibe through your politics. If you have a much more constructive um, government, let's face it, Labour government, which we all kind of know, probably, if they had the chance to flip Although Richard Sunak is also quite a lot more constructive stylistically. Yes, that's true, from an unbelievably low base. That's like being, that's like being more optimistic than me. It's like you're clearing a very, very low base. <laughs> OK, well, I, but, I walked into that. And also, <laughs> and, but, but also, of course, he, he, is, he, is, he is held back by his government. OK, by his party, by his yes. party. Um, so, you know, I think it's, if there is a sense of goodwill, then yes, you know, the EU does have a reasonable amount of, of discretion if it chooses to use it. The, their only problem, of course, will be you can elect a star government, you have no guarantee that you're not going to slide back into another you know, obstructed Tory government in five or ten years. But I do think there is, a, there is a sort of momentum in there, and there was so much goodwill destroyed um, since Brexit that, that that will help to some extent at the margin um, in getting easier deals. Again, I just don't see that much connection between things like security and military on the one hand and, and trade on the other. You know, yeah, of course, if the EU were an integrated you know, security, military, trade, economic unit, you'd definitely want the UK in there because the UK, along with France, is you know, one it's of the some... grown-up military powers in Europe. Um, but it isn't. Um, it's not getting there. And it's, I think it's, 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 this is absolutely not my expertise, but as I understand it, the UK and France, through the Lancaster House Agreements mm -hmm. and other things, um, have actually maintained a reasonably constructive military yeah. um, alliance, completely separate from what they're doing in the EU. You know, I remember seeing a photo of the first, and now I may be wrong about this, but the, the first field promotion actually just literally there in the field in the British Army in 43 years was conducted by a French general. Mm -hmm of some dude in Mali. He's this very surprised person in the middle of Mali having this <laughs> medal <laughs> upgrade pinned on him by a, by a French general. Okay. Um, you I'm know, not sure and, what the lesson and, of that and is. And there's this board, I've, I forgot what it's called now, European Political Community? Yeah, yeah, community. yeah which, is, which is fine. But I just, I don't think that's... When the EU has tried to use trade as an explicit thing in foreign policy, yeah. it really screwed up. That's what caused Vladimir Putin to annex, annex Crimea in 2014. You signed a trade deal with... People, um, people think you're heading in. Yeah. But with but with no hard power to back it up. Okay, right, then related question. Back, we're back to Robin again here. Everyone's name begins with R today. Don't, I'm going to bastardise this question slightly. So the EU political has strong hints, that's hints, not hits, I think, of May uh, as PM. That, that's definitely 100% right. It definitely does. The, um, here's, so here's the question. Should everybody have just voted for Theresa May's deal? Because that... Them, which is basically my view, but like no one spoke to me for a year afterwards. But like, um, so let's go in the audience in the room. So should everyone have just done Theresa May's deal? Hands in the air for yes. All right, no, you all hate Theresa May, you lot do. Interesting. Okay, therefore, hands up for no. Well, you lot just haven't got a view. What's that about? <laughs> That's the whole point. Second That's referendum. the whole problem. Oh, right, God, yeah. please tell me, put your hands up if you were pro a second referendum at the time. Come on, be honest, people. 
There's two of you. So basically, none of you have a view on Brexit. Okay, this is not true. I've met the British public in the last <laughs> uh, six years. They've definitely got a view. You're all useless on that, right? Let's give the panel a better chance. Everyone's scared in the room. So, Alan, should everyone vote for Theresa May's deal? Um, if they had known in advance what the alternative was, yes. Because, again, I think that the pressure would then have been to expand that into you know, full alignment and um, membership. However, I wasn't really paying attention at the time I was abroad, but the... Um, I think you probably could have constructed a majority in the Commons for a closer relationship. Um, it's prob the problem is that some people were holding out for... Yeah, that, that, that went well. Yeah. <laughs> Sally? Yes, we absolutely should. I mean, if, if you... You and Theresa May like this? If you very much so, but if you prioritise the economy over control, then absolutely that would have been a better outcome. Sophie? Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say, I mean, obviously, yes, because this is essentially what we're saying. <laughs> so I think big picture, yes. I guess what people didn't, or at least I, you know, looking at things at the time, didn't appreciate was um, what we would see kind of playing out between like goods and services, which we've kind of talked about, so like the strength of services. And actually, mm -hmm. the deal didn't do nope. as much to address services. Services is this big, important sector. So... I think, you know, there was an argument just purely from an economics point of view that maybe you're not like backing the right horses with that deal. But actually, as it turns out, they were, were definitely the, the um, yeah, goods definitely needed some extra help and, and it would have done, delivered that. Would have done that. Great. Right. OK, then to wrap us up, the, um, let's just have a few words from each of you on what is actually going to happen in the next... Let's do, let's do five years, so it's not like what's happening tomorrow, uh, but what's going to happen on how is kind of where the geopolitics of trade actually being in it again, globally slash uh, changed vibes is Alan's like focus versus there's nothing trade policy can do. So all the action should be somewhere else going to take us over the next um, five years. That's very unfair, but I'm going to pick someone to start at random. And well, the answer, where are we going to be in five years time? I think the lump theories will be stronger, whether that's the lump of business or what lump of think tanks, as we've so discussed. You're like, you're like protectionism yeah. up. I think our protectionism up. Oh I don't see much in the way of structural change in our relationship with the EU. Very good. Very clear. Sally? Yeah, I agree with that. I think the factor that could be an interesting change is if we do get a Labour government. I've been really impressed with the Labour shadow trade team in terms mm. of their uh, the extent to which they're putting quite deep and broad thought into what a trade strategy might look like if they're, if they're elected. And so give, us, we, give us grounds for impressiveness, um, for them being nice and coming talking to you. So they've got some really interesting ideas on export controls, some really interesting ideas around how to deal with um, the tension between a, an SPS agreement with the EU and other trade deals. They've got some interesting thoughts on investment promotion. Because that is their main, mm. that's their main, like, doing sensible small things with the ESPS and stuff. But only if it doesn't disrupt other, other things. They've got, some, they've got some, some really quite innovative ideas there. They've got some really quite interesting viewpoints around quick wins and low-hanging fruit that, for whatever reason, the current administration has ignored for, for a while. And I, okay. I just think that there might be some refreshed thinking. OK, very good. Alan, where are we going to be? Um, I'm just assuming here that um, we have a Labour government and indeed Biden gets re-elected because... Otherwise it's all over people. Well, mm. Someone like someone mad like... The West has ended. Yes, exactly. Indeed. Got bigger problems at that point. Yeah. Um, yes, I assume that the UK edges towards the EU mobility agreements, veterinary agreements, SPS, what have you. Um, it looks, as I say before, just because of the luck of cyclical, it looks reasonably impressive. And then everything turns towards... Um, 
what will happen in a um, in a second term. So you want to? You think we're heading for a twenty twenty nine row about whether we're on a rejoining path or not? Probably. Okay. Very Lib Dem of you. There, Sophie, you're going. Uh, I guess the one kind of extra factor is what happens with the kind of Northern Ireland protocol. So the way that it's kind of been talked about now is like the Windsor framework happened and that's just like yeah. fixed that. But I don't know if I necessarily <laughs> fully agree with that. I think it's like a bit of a sticking Has met Northern Ireland politics? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's clearly still not resolved from yeah. a Northern Ireland perspective. Um, and so, you know, under the Labour government, another big flare-up of Northern Ireland um, trade issues. Could that be enough impetus to kind of move um, the UK and EU into kind of Renegotiating, Re um, I mean, you would kind of hope. Okay, so. Right, we're going to finish. We've ever run because I have no self control, but um, we're going to finish on what you've all actually been waiting for right since the beginning, which is Alan. We would like a Liz Truss anecdote from when you were 20. I'd like it to be short due to the overrunning thing and ideally really good. Have you got I don't, one? I don't really have an anecdote except oh. she was absolutely exactly the same. She was an extremely accomplished wind up merchant, someone who's writing a book about this stuff recently found, a, a, I was just telling you, a front page of the student paper in which she'd said we shouldn't have women's offices. Um, this was obviously never going to happen, ever, ever going to happen. But the extent to which half the student union executive, including me, rowed um, about it. Yeah, rowed about it, leapt around like scolding cats. Okay. Um, she, was, she was sort of very good at that. But it does not surprise me at all, at all, that um, we are, she, we are. she crashed and burned because she was, she's an ideologue without management capability. She's not like Thatcher. So the real lesson from that, which I've always felt very strongly, is that you should have abolished student politics years ago. There's no excuse for it. Nobody wins. <laughs> and lots of people let themselves down very badly. <laughs> and on that note, everybody, can we thank the panel uh, for their help today? Um, thank you all for coming, particularly people in the audience, for your bold views on what you would have voted for in Theresa May. <laughs> you can all go home proud of yourself that when the push came, when you were, a country asked you to make a decision, you sat on your hands. That is the Britain I believe in. Have a good day, and we'll see you at a new event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.